Now, what happens in the rest of the sermon is an explication of those first verses. And that's the way you are to understand the structure of the sermon. It's not, as academics would tell you, a collection of sayings of Jesus brought together by an editor. As you will see, it's the most coherent sermon the world has ever heard. With not a wasted word. Of course, we only have the notes. But So what Jesus does now, to, to show you where you're going, in chapter 5, he deals with our tendency to legalism. He knew, he knew about us. In chapter 6, he deals with our practice of piety and the life of the mind. And in chapter 7, he deals with judgment. How to and how not to. Uh, so that's how it's structured. And as I've said, the solution to each problem is to go back to the beginning. So obviously the Pharisees were listening to Jesus. And this was not the law as they were used to it. And Jesus knew they were saying that. And so he gets on their case immediately and he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And he says, not the smallest mark will disappear from the law until all is accomplished. And he says, anyone who diminishes the law and teaches men so uh, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anybody who does this law and teaches it will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And then he stuns everybody. But unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, some particularly rigid dispensationalists don't go to the Sermon on the Mount because they say it's not church age. That's a ridiculous way to read the Bible. Uh, all scripture is given. Um, but what did Jesus... You can't actually understand this passage as it was to be understood at that point. Grace is right there at that point because Jesus is not saying it. He's just said you can get the kingdom, but you cannot get it the pharisaical way. It cannot be achieved by keeping the law. Now, the, the summary of what Jesus was doing, for the Jews, the law was the way to holiness. As they, an Orthodox Jew would say, if the Jews kept the law for a day, Messiah would come. But what Jesus is saying is what Paul later summarizes in one verse. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. If the law had not said thou shalt not covet, I would not have known what sin was, says Paul. We need to have a tool to make the right diagnosis, a measurement, and the measurement that we need is a measurement of sin, and for that you need an objective moral law. Now what Jesus does now is, it's about grace, really. He takes several examples, and I won't be able to do them all this morning. And he turns them on their head and then puts a sting in the tail. So he says, you have heard that men of old taught you that you shall not kill. And if you kill, you'll be liable to judgment. But I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. And he goes at the end, he says, if you treat your brother as worthy of no respect, dismiss him. Then not only are you liable to judgment, you're in danger of hellfire. Now, which would you prefer, judgment or hellfire? Most of us would say, well, at least there's still some hope with judgment. Uh, yet most of us would also prefer to be dismissed than killed. But you see what's at stake here? Is that Jesus is getting at legalism. He's, at the, he's after the heart all the way through. Now, who is the person in my life who is most likely to have and to murder me in the future? That's right, my wife. <laughs> uh, 
I'm only alive because she didn't have the meat cleaver in her hand at various points in our marriage, you know. Uh, that's why you can't really defend yourself against murder because the person most likely to do it is next to you. Uh, but I think she would be repentant immediately afterwards. I mean, she was a redhead. She's not redheaded anymore, but the temperament remains. Uh, it would be an act of emotion, as much murder is. And actually, our law is very much a bludgeon. To send somebody who's closely related to the person they killed, who loved them, and in a fit of emotion killed them to prison. Oh, it's necessary for social reasons, but it's a total waste of time. They're not any danger to anyone else. But if there's someone in your church to whom you never return the time of day, how far is your heart from the heart of Christ? It's turned 180 degrees away, isn't it? It's going in the opposite direction. That's what Jesus is saying. The law is supposed to do. To dismiss somebody as not worthy of your attention is worse than murder in Christ's sake because of what it's doing to your soul. Murder is an act of emotion. We all have emotions that get out of control. We're usually repentant immediately afterwards. But there are, aren't there, people you never bother to talk to? Probably for most of us. They're the ones that he wants us to deal with. And so he says, if you're about to give a million dollars to the church, so to speak, and then you remember that there is a brother in the congregation that you think of as a fool, forget your million dollars. First go and be reconciled with that brother, then give your gift. This is stunning stuff, isn't it? If this hasn't got, got you back to poverty of spirit, you're totally insensitive. And he rubs it in a bit more. Uh, you know, he says... If your brother takes you to court, settle with him on the way. In other words, whatever you're accused of, the reality is probably worse. You might be able to cover it up, you might be able to win in court. But he says, in principle, settle on the way, lest the real truth comes out, because then you won't get out until you've paid the last penny. It's just we're all sinners. We're all equal before God. There are no degrees of sin theologically, are there? None. There's not one sin worse than another. We like to think there is, but there isn't, theologically. There is sociologically. Some sins have social implications, which mean they have to be published public, punished publicly for the social good. But how much sin separates us from God? Any sin. It's an all or none phenomenon. So there are no degrees of sin theologically. So we're all equal. Uh, there's nobody here more or less of a sinner than anyone else at that level. Now, some of us have done things which are going to have ramifications for the rest of our lives. We'll come to what Christ suggests we do with that in a little while. So that's the first one. The second one is for men more than women because it's about lust. Uh, and... Uh, uh, it's really very funny. I, I'm sometimes a little cruel. Um, I quite enjoy talking to groups of nice young Christian students, women, and asking them how often they lust after a man. And of course they all go coy on you and they won't answer. And I say, well, not you, your friends. <laughs> and in the end they might say, well, once a month or something like that, uh, or a little less. Now what about the guys? in medical school. Peak hormone flux. I mean, it's every 90 milliseconds. 
uh, we're different creatures, and both, both sides need to recognize that. It's one of the biggest problems that the church doesn't do significant teaching on sexuality as it actually is. Uh, uh, women could then feel a little uh, sorrow and a little sympathy for their husbands driven by these hormones and uh, set them free. That's the, the beauty of the Anglican marriage, marriage service for companionship, uh, but also for, uh, to stop fornication. Um, it's something women can do for men, and they don't realize how desperate they are, and they hate begging for it, but that's, it's all there. That's the way it goes. And Jesus says, but lust is in the look. There's no one here, even amongst the women, I suspect, who is not guilty of adultery. Uh, because we've all looked. And Christ looks on the heart, the intention. More of that later too. And so he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, of course, the, the modern evangelical version of that is, if your brother's eye offends you, pluck it out. Um, that's wrong. That's not biblical. And, of course, the eye is a metaphor. The example I like of how this is done properly is Hudson Taylor, who, like me, could get involved in a novel uh, to a degree, if it was a really good one, he wouldn't do any work for a day or so. As a professor, you can do that. Shut your door. Who knows what you're doing? You know. Uh, um, now, Hudson Taylor is a much better man than me. He realised that this was his eye. It was interfering with his discipleship. So he gave up novel reading. He never read novels after about the age of 17 or 18. There is no evidence that he ever told anyone else not to read novels. That was his eye, which he plucked out, because from his perspective, it was standing in the way of his development as a disciple. Joanna Wesley put it to John and said, whatever diminishes your sense of God, that for you is sin. Uh, that's very simple, isn't it? And she's right. What a woman. I mean, she taught herself Latin and Greek in order to educate her children uh, and what she did for the world. But whatever diminishes your sense of God, for you, that is sin. Uh, it can be golf. Sorry, but it could be. Uh, there are all sorts of things. We're a very addictive people, aren't we? And some addictions are very private. Uh, they're nevertheless addictions. Uh, the problems with academics is that we can do everything inside our heads, so uh, people don't know what's going on. But it shows in your life because what you do is what you become. Uh, these things have to be dealt with. Now the next, so he says, if you don't do it, you might lose everything. Now you can work your way through the next ones because there isn't that much time left. Um, they're very interesting, divorce, uh, promise keeping, swearing, uh, you've got to realize you've got to be people of your word, uh, how you deal with aggression against yourself, which you are to accept, but you put your life on the line to defend the rights of others. That's a distinction that we often don't make. 
that's what's being said there. And you do it in such a way to say to the person who is abusing you, I will allow you to do this, but I also show you that I am doing it freely because I love you. Uh, it's a means of outreach. And you can follow it through. And at the end he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now the only perfection that's available to us is the perfection that's in Christ. Again, the gospel and grace are there. The imputed righteousness of God. But our perfection is towards intention. Uh, we often fail in our ethical analysis because you always need those three issues. The action itself, the intent of the actor and the outcome. We're very much outcome based because that's our world, but it's not a Christian world. The end never justifies the means for a Christian. But in medicine it frequently does. That's how I got sucked into being pro-choice. Uh, but throughout this sermon, what God is after, what Christ is after, is the heart. Uh, for the Jew, of course, the heart and mind could not be separated. Uh, that's why in the Old Testament you love God with your heart, and Jesus adds when he's talking in the New Testament, mind, he knows about us. He knows about the dualism that is to come. Uh, and he says, not for my disciples, heart and mind have to hold together. Uh, we don't split, we don't splinter. And then we come to, to chapter six. And this is about the practice of piety. How are my disciples to practice piety, to practice their faith? And the key is that it is to be done before God and not before man. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give. And prayer, this is the one that probably we need to focus on most. Because prayer is currently at the level in many places of what I call supermarket prayers. Lord, give me this, this and this and what's on special this week. Uh, that is not prayer. Uh, the ultimate prayer, of course, is wordless. Uh, it's to be in the presence of God adoring him and there are no words appropriate uh, but what Jesus says is when you pray go into your room, shut the door do not babble like the heathen and then he tells you one other thing before you start to pray, what is it? it's the other thing you've got to do before you start to pray those who haven't looked it up yet Well, he says, remember that your heavenly father knows what you need. So you're not asking him for your needs. He already knows that. You are to ask for your needs, but not because you need them. <laughs> it's a subtle distinction. Um, and then you get to the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is the model prayer. I hope you pray it every day. I hope you use it as a model. There's very little in it that's navel-gazing. You start, as I pointed out earlier, our father, not my father. Immediately he's not only having you look upwards, but realize that many other people are looking upwards with the same relationship to God. Uh, and the difference between us and him. He, there, wherever there is, or everywhere. An entirely different uh, dimension of everything. And we here. But thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are to be engaged in looking round to see what in our daily situation is not conformed to the kingdom of God and God's will that we could do something about. 
I hope you, when you go back, you will sit down and say, what in my family, what in my work, what in my church can I do to bring the kingdom of heaven closer on earth as it is in heaven? And there's things to do in those three environments all the while, aren't there? Home, work, and church. And I listed some yesterday that you could think of doing in church. That power of attorney committee, uh, that parish nurse program, you, your own office and your workplace, that's you. Your family, keeping the Sabbath would be a very good thing for all doctors to do. One of the great joys of my life over the years is another talk that I get I now know I have to do again and again and again. It comes out slightly differently every time, which is the Hittites talk. Uh, brings me lots of joy because I meet people along the way who bless me uh, because I have transformed by the grace of God. God did it. So I was just the means. Their family. Young doctors who hear me talk about the raising of children and their function of reading the stories to their children and do it. One I can think that comes to mind who said, his wife is a lawyer and they sat down and worked out how they were going to do it and he comes home at four o'clock uh, to be there to read the stories before the meal, put the child to bed and goes back and does his paperwork afterwards. He said actually I'm much more efficient. Of course you have to be within a reasonable driving distance, uh, distance of your workplace to be able to do that but if, that, if that's what's required, move. Uh, the trendy address really doesn't matter does it? Uh, what matters is that we live the life that Christ wants us to. And the only thing you regret as you get older is the time you didn't spend with your children. You, nobody ever says, I wish I'd spent another day in the laboratory or the office or the, the OR. No one. But we all, we all regret what we didn't do with our children that we could have done. Uh, by the grace of God, he st they still come through. So, the kingdom of of God on earth is we really do believe in that I hope there's so many words we use that we don't really seem to believe in I wonder how many Christians for instance believe in the resurrection of the body that's, that's a, you can bend your mind around that one but it's to be more alive than we ever were before like Christ after the resurrection a body that could still eat but could go through walls and then didn't have any travelling problems obviously uh, uh, it, it, there's a few hints of what it might be like. It should be an exciting concept. But to me, many people seem to have a miserable view of heaven as a sort of uh, no reality to it almost. Well, the Bible's very down, you know, solid, concrete. So, the kingdom of heaven now as well as then. And when it comes to the real practicalities, give us this day our daily bread, which can be translated, give us today tomorrow's bread. Give us that sense of security that we are going to eat. And you have to go to places like Africa to see Christians living that way, um, of necessity in many cases. Uh, the more we are in total control of our lives, of course, the less space we leave for God. If you want to know who God is, you have to go beyond your comfort zone. Uh, that's, the way, that's simply the reality. Uh, and then, of course, the forgiveness, the repentance, which has to be there. And that's the bit that he repeats. Any churches, church whose prayers do not reflect each of those components are incomplete prayers. Uh, he's given us a model prayer because it is a model prayer. We should use it. Uh, and when you do, 
it, it makes a difference. Now, then he comes to fasting. So he says you've got giving, praying, and fasting. And he doesn't say if you fast. He says when you fast. It's a given that fasting is part of our lives. Uh, and it doesn't just mean fasting from food. It means fasting from anything that might impede uh, discipleship, uh, sense of the presence of God, uh, commitment to our service. So it might be fasting from the kinds of holidays you like to, t to take. In my case, uh, it's very clear which bit of my life is out of control and my wife constantly tries to bring under control and it's called a book. Uh, they're in every room. Uh, she said, you can't. You've already got more books than you could read in your lifetime. Uh, and you buy more. I said, that will continue. Um, because I know where I want to go in that book. But yes, it does need to be kept under control. We all know which bit it is, don't we? We don't need anybody to tell us, really. But if you really need help, ask your spouse. Which bit of my life looks like... Um, unjustifiable self-indulgence. Give it up, fast from it. Uh, and your father will take notice and you will be blessed. And then he comes on to the one that this weekend has been about in many ways. Uh, and it's a little obscure. The light of the body is the eye. And there are two visions, light and darkness. And the way you see determines whether your body is full of light or darkness. And I hope that one of the things you'll carry away from this weekend is that sense that I need to be a lot more careful about my thoughts. Uh, and to learn to read and think more carefully. And the reason for that is so that your body may be filled with light. Give attention to reading, says Paul. He means it. There's nothing in the New Testament about your feelings for which you are responsible. But time and time again, what do the apostles say? They say, let your mind be changed. Not your feelings, your mind. The way you think. Um, that is essential. That's what we've neglected, the life of the mind. Uh, you can see it in our churches. In the time of Jonathan Edwards, most pastors in North America had a working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. How many of you have a pastor who has a good working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew? That's why you're here in a way. You're a subset, aren't you? And you know that. You're here in part because you want more, not because you want less. Uh, but so many churches have none of that. None. We need to... We are the people who have every reason to hang on to language, and that's something that uh, Americans need to think about a lot. Uh, the two things in university that are really worth making the effort for are mathematics and language. They're permanent. Or the versions of language, of course, literature and the rest go with it. You could see Graham you know, is a special case, uh, but you press a button and you get six pages of poetry. Beautifully expressed ideas. I mean, it's a family trait. His father could recite the whole of the, uh, the Pilgrim's Progress and did it every year at summer camp in five episodes from memory, word perfect. Uh, his son can do the same sort of thing. It's a, it's a lovely family gift, isn't it? But we should be committed to 
Good words said well. If you hear something said well, the only excuse you have for ever saying it badly yourself is laziness. Write it down, learn it. You've seen I have a battered little book that I carry around with me. They last about 10 years and that one's got about two spaces left and I have to move on to another one. But that's what we're talking about here. Every time I hear something said well or find it written, not every time, but as often as I can drive myself to do it, I write it down. And I will reread those things every now and again. It's a lovely book to read on a plane or something like that. And I got all my children to do that when they were about, when they began to be interested in stories. I gave them a little book in which I'd written down on the first 20 pages my favorite quotations with them in mind. They all got the habits. And they sail through arts courses and philosophy courses because they've been taught to look for a really good uh, statement on all the key issues. My son in his philosophy course said, I didn't have a single essay to write for which I didn't already have a superb comment by a Christian on the issue at stake. The result, his Jewish professor of History of Western Civilization at the end of the year gave him an A plus and said, Jonathan, I will miss your essays next year because you always seem to have bigger questions on your mind than I do. That's who we should be. But we won't get that by reading trashy magazines. Ask yourself whether your reading, even Harry Blamire's is, is an introduction, uh, is equivalent to the, the attention you give to your work. Which is the more demanding reading that you're doing at the moment? Probably for your group it is now not your medical reading. But for most doctors, Christian doctors, their most demanding reading is technical, professional. Yet your profession is of only temporal importance. The other things are of eternal importance and it should show up in your reading. That's what's at stake here. The, the, the thought is expressed beautifully in, in Psalm 86. Unite my heart to fear thy name. The whole idea of the thought, the mind of the Christian, of the disciple, being integrated is what's there. It's not splintered all over the place, with a little bit for Sunday morning and a little bit for the clinic. It all fits together. A united heart and mind. They go together. Then he goes on and says, talks about your treasure. Lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break, up in, break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Just ask yourself the question, could you give a better account of the epistles or your investments? Got you right. That's what he's talking about. Uh, what are the things, if you were asked to talk about the things that you could give a most coherent account of, just cold, what are they? That's what changed me. Because the reason I'm doing this now is the students said to me, uh, I said to them, you're ignorant because you're biblically illiterate. And they got angry and said, we're not ignorant. And I said, well, tell me how the Sermon on the Mount starts and what it says. And of course they couldn't, they were ignorant. The result was an Agnostics Anonymous group. Um, but as I walked away, I realized that I could not give a coherent account of the Sermon on the Mount off the cuff. Whereas as a professor, the thing that you do, the gift that, that's given you, if you're meant to be a professor, so many people are professors who shouldn't be, and that must be terrible. Uh, and I'd only realized 
fairly well on in my course when somebody said to me, how long do you spend preparing lectures for undergraduates? And I said, I think 20 minutes is excessive for an undergraduate course, isn't it? And he said, you mean that, don't you? I said, well, it's a bit flippant, but more or less, yes. Uh, and so I would sometimes go to biochemistry lectures with the wrong notes because I was bored and just turned the pages and see if I could get away with it. It just made it a bit more interesting. Um, and yet I couldn't give a coherent account of the Sermon on the Mount. That's utterly indefensible. I clearly have the gift to be able to do that, yet I hadn't done it. So I learned the Sermon on the Mount by heart. Learned it, not memorized it. Very different. Uh, and that was the best thing I ever did in my life. And that process has carried on from there. And it also changed the way I taught other things. That's what he's talking about. Heart and mind united to be as God would have it. Just, if you don't believe me, go back to poverty of spirit and ask the Lord to show me, am I using my mind as you intended me to use it? Am I using it as well as you intended me to use it? If not, please show me. Very dangerous prayers, because you will. Um, and the world will change. And then he goes on, very much for us, isn't it? Anxiety. Why do you worry about what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will put on? Can't you use your eyes? Can't you look at the birds? Can't you look at the flowers? How stupid can you be? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all these other things shall be yours as well. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We should not be anxious. It is actually a sin to be anxious. Sorry, but it is. Now, there is chronic anxiety state with a neurophysiological base that's going to be sorted out. And we'll deal with that, um, phobic states. But anxiety in principle is not for us. And Paul, in the last chapter of Philippians, tells you exactly how to do it, way ahead of the curve. Give thanks, make a request known, and set your mind on whatsoever is good and pure and true. And then he says, you will learn in whatever state you are to be content, even if your head's going to be chopped off in 10 minutes' time. And it's true. It's true. Again and again, people witness to it being true. And God can, can make you aware of those things. If this is the issue, then you're going to go back to poverty of spirit and deal with it. Shortly before my wife and I were to be apart for two years, uh, with her in Central Africa and me doing my job in Ottawa except in the summer, there was one thing we needed to learn. We didn't know why we needed to learn it, but we had to learn it. And we were traveling in Zaire, and we had a breakdown, so we were on the road after dark, long after dark, midnight, and we got stopped by a drunken soldier with a Kalashnikov. Now, there was no law in Zaire, as it was then, as there's no law in the DRC as it is now. He could have killed us, taken what he wanted, and nothing would have happened to him. Uh, there were a driver, a few Africans, my wife and my son. He made us get out of the car. He didn't kill us immediately. Obviously, he didn't kill us. I'm here today. But after a few minutes, I said to my 19-year-old son, as he was then, are you anxious? And he said, no, I'm not. Isn't that strange? I said, it is strange, isn't it? And I'm not anxious either. Neither is your mother. And he knows that, and it's worrying him a lot. 
And then, out of nowhere, at one o'clock in the morning, another soldier appeared. He wasn't drunk, and we were free. But we had no... People often say to Sally, you must be, have been very courageous. And if I'm there, I say, no, she's not courageous. <coughs> because to be courageous, you have to overcome fear, and she doesn't have any. Uh, we were not anxious during that time. It had gone. God can do that. God can do that. Um, and what a witness that is to the world at large. That's what he's talking about. And then we come to the last chapter. Chapter 7 about judgment. And here again we don't read carefully enough. Judge not that you be not judged for the judgment you give is the judgment you'll get. Luke adds good measure pressed down and running over. So we should all be non-judgmental, right? Wrong. Read it all. He says you hypocrite. Why do you want to take a splinter out of your brother's eye when you've got a log in your own eye? First get the log removed from your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the splinter from your brother's eye. Judgment is essential. Judgment is the nature of being a human being. You used to come to university to learn to discriminate. Uh, that is what life is about. But Jesus does it differently. He says, get the log removed from your own eye and then you can help people with splinter disease. No pride involved, guaranteed. Our problem is that we like to remove uh, splinters from the eye of other people when we never had log disease. In other words, we want to help people with problems we know nothing about. If you feel called to go and help somebody struggle with a divorce that you haven't had, or, or any sin that you have not experienced, bite your tongue, get down on your knees and go back to poverty of spirit. The bits of your life that Jesus will use are not those bits. Which bits are they? Where you've struggled. After all, what does Christ take from you when you become a Christian? That's right, sins. So to whom do your sins belong? They belong to Christ, don't they? He's bought them at what might be called an inflated price, certainly by our standards. So does he have the right to use them? He does, doesn't he? This is frightening, but this is truth. The first time I saw this done, I was stunned. Uh, I was giving a talk for a pregnancy distress group, uh, an annual fundraising dinner. I was utterly irrelevant to the evening. Because before I spoke, a couple with two children spoke. And the story they told was very short and only told with tears. He was a pastor's son. They had met at university, fallen in love, gone too far, got pregnant. Then the really tragic sentence, which would be true of many of your churches. There was no one in our church or at home that we felt we could talk to. So they went to the United States and got an abortion. Unlike most people who share an abortion, they continued to share a relationship. She didn't get a degree, but they married. In a little while, a child came. 
The joy of that birth was marred by the recognition that it was their second child. And she was not well afterwards. Nobody could tell her what was wrong. Another child. Still it didn't get better. And then she read about the post-abortion syndrome and said, that's me. And she went for counselling with her husband. Fortunately, had a wonderful woman counsellor who said, look, rightly, there are no degrees of sin. But no sin can be forgiven that has not been confessed. You need to repent. And she took them through that process. And when they'd finished, she wisely said, they were making progress. She said, now remember, this sin belongs to the Lord and he may wish to use it. Be open to that. Now he was a, an elder in their church by this stage. And in a few months they felt that the Holy Spirit was asking them to share with their church their abortion history. You want a definition of courage? This is it, isn't it? How many of you would uh, be willing to stand up in front of your church and share your abortion history? That would take courage. But they did it. Only with tears. And by the grace of God, the church wept with them. And how many people do you think came forward saying, we need to be forgiven too? I think on that occasion it was about six. And when you go to church on Sunday morning, if your church is meeting a random cross-section of Americans, what proportion of people in the congregation have been intimately involved with an abortion? Hmm? At least a third. At least a third, probably 50%. Because something approaching 30% of American pregnancies end in abortion, and it's usually the first. And in many cases, the only abortion. So they then go on and have families. It's the huge pain underlying the church. And it's central to any effective evangelism that we deal with this. It's got to be done. Your sins have got to be put to work. Not exactly what you expected to hear this weekend, I'm sure, but it's what has to be done. Now, the first time I did it, I only did it because my tongue got ahead of my mind, which occasionally it does. I was asked to do what all physicians should be asked to do regularly, talk to the young people's group about sexuality. How many of you are guilty of not having done that yet? Is anyone in your church doing it? Because if not, it's your duty. It's got to be done. It's got to be done honestly, openly, no pussyfooting around the realities. Uh, some people won't like it, it's got to be done. Um, I was asked to do it. I did it. And then my tongue got ahead of my brain at the end of it. And then I said, in summary, the only good thing is chastity before marriage and fidelity afterwards. I only wish I'd done it. I moved on very quickly. Uh, hoping that no one had noticed what I'd said, but someone, but, but someone had. And a few weeks later, about nine o'clock at night, there was a knock on our door, and there was the assistant pastor's wife who had been there. And she said rather nervously, you said something to the young people that makes me think you might not be judgmental. She was having an affair, and she needed help to finish it. And we were able to do that. And as far as I know, they're still in the ministry today. No pride involved in that process. Therefore good. Because pride is the killer sin. You've all got sins, haven't you? Anybody here who doesn't have a sin that you know could be used by someone else? 
try using it. Uh, it's, uh, it's, not a, it's not an unpainful experience, but it's also a blessed one. Uh, that's, the, that's the difference between us and everybody else. Mercy and truth can kiss one another. It's a beautiful line from the Psalms. That's what he's talking about. That's the redemption that is available for your sins. God can bring good out of them, but you've got to give them back. Uh, if you don't know what your sins are, ask. People will soon tell you. And that's just the visible ones. That'll be the clue. You'll find the, the deeper roots by prayer. That's what's going on here. And then he goes on and says, I know this is difficult for you. He says, don't cast what is holy to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before swine. That's pretty judgmental, calling some people dogs and swine. And of course, we're not very good at that, are we? We often evangelize rather like carving notches on our gun if we were a cowboy. Uh, it's not the way to do it. You need wisdom. Uh, some evangelism puts people off for years, doesn't it? You don't want to be guilty of that when you get to the judgment day. Neither do you want to be guilty of not speaking when you should, so you've got to go back to poverty of spirit and building that sensitivity to the voice of God. But that's what it's about. So he said, why don't you ask? Why don't you seek? Why don't you knock? You don't give bad gifts to your children. Why would I not give good gifts to you? And that comes to the, the golden rule. Do not do to others what you would not wish them to do to you. And here's a very interesting thing. We're in medical schools. How many of you had an ethics course in your medical class? So you got the Georgetown mantra, right? Autonomy, justice, beneficence, non-maleficence. You see what's wrong with that? I guarantee that none of you were asked to consider the ordering of that mantra, right? And it is ordered. You see, for us, the framework is the negative law of the Old Testament. You can legislate, thou shalt not. Then Christ puts on top of that beneficence. You cannot legislate, thou shalt, the love. Once those things are in place, you have a framework within which freedom can happen. Because there is no freedom without law. And the better that law, the better that freedom. So if you build on non-maleficence, you have a certain amount of freedom. If you build on the positive law that's here in the Sermon on the Mount, you have greater freedom. The freedom that I have when I travel, because I have brothers and sisters who share that view. Uh, I have no worries when I travel. I, I can get a bed probably in any city in the Western world in about 10 minutes, because I'm in that inside the family. Now when that justice is framed, now you have a genuine autonomy. But of course, we allow ethics to be taught in our medical school in an incoherent way. You start with autonomy, but autonomy without law is anarchy, and that's what you're working with. And are we there saying that? You win that argument if you do it. That's why they wouldn't allow me to teach the ethics course in my university. I wasn't allowed anywhere near it. Because every time I, I did creep in and give a lecture, the students followed me out to ask questions. That never happened to anyone else. Because I'm speaking truth. And we read these things and they just flow over us. And then the most difficult bit of the sermon for me. 
That metaphor of the broad way and the narrow way. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are, there are that go that way. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and there are few that go that way. Enter by the narrow gate. What did he mean? What did he say? I have to warn you that what I'm about to say is not what most of the commentators say now. Although one CMDA member, whose name I've now lost because my computer crashed, did send me a note a year or so ago uh, saying, there's somebody on your side, Erasmus says the same thing as you. And I haven't tracked it down yet, I haven't had time, but I will do. But by this time I had understood that this sermon was not about anything other than the distinction between being a mere believer and a disciple. So to use that verse as it is usually used to preach the gospel with the broad way going to hell and the narrow way going to life is valid at a certain level as a means of preaching the gospel, but it's not what Jesus did with it on this occasion. Because it would be totally out of... It has no place in this kind of sermon. And I think this is what he said. He said, when you see the truth about who I am and come to me, your life will change. But if you hold on to your own agenda, if you plan your life, you're going to go down the Broadway. Sadly, most of you are going to do that. And you lose on that deal. You miss out on life. If you want to really know what life is, not only must you see the truth about who I am, but you must give your life's agenda into my hands. No baggage is allowed on this journey and you will enter into life. Mother Teresa left the baggage behind and went down the narrow way. Did she get the life? Of course she did. Hudson Taylor did the same. Did he get the life? Of course he did. Do you want life? This is the way you do it. The parallel passage which convinces me this is the right interpretation is 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul says there's only one foundation upon which you can build your life, that's Jesus. And you do build on it. You built on it this weekend, last week, you're going to build on it this next week. We build every day, we are builders of necessity. But, says Paul, the nature of your building will be assessed. And it could be wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver or precious stones. If your building is wood, hay and stubble, Come the judgment, it will go up in smoke. If it's gold, silver, and precious stones, you'll receive a reward. And he says, the man whose work is consumed will still be saved. Your soul is not in danger because God has given his word on that. But he will suffer loss. Do you want to get into heaven with your eyebrows singed? That's what he's saying. Or do you want to hear... Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what he's talking about. Then he goes on and warns you about people like me. And unfortunately, you can't do what he says because we're peripatetic travelers. Other people have to do that for you. But he says, beware of your teachers. For some of them are wolves in sheep's clothing. And the way you tell is you look at their works. Good trees produce good fruit. You don't get any other relationship. And then he says something absolutely stunning. He says there are some people who will come to me at the judgment and say, Lord, Lord, we did this and this. We went to CMDA meetings. We ran meetings. We went on mission trips. And he'll say, go to hell. I never knew you. That's stunning, isn't it? 
That's back to poverty of spirit. And then at the end, there's another parable, which again is usually misinterpreted, misused. Misused in the sense of taking it out of context. It can be used to preach the gospel. It is, of course, the, the parable of the man who builds on the rock and the man who builds on the sand. But what is the difference between those two men? What is he illustrating? It's not those who believe and those who don't. He says this, what shall I liken a man who hears my word and does it? He is like the man who builds on the rock. And what shall I liken a man who hears my word? That implies acceptance as well, but does not do it. He is like the man who builds on the sand, and his life will be a wreck. And when he had finished all these sayings, the crowd were astonished because he spoke with authority and not like the scribes. Amen.